Hello, and welcome to Dream Leapers with Harriet Cole here on WBAI, that's 99.5 FM in New York City and everywhere online at WBAI.org. My name is Harriet Cole. I'm so happy to be with you today. What interesting times we are in. We are in the week of Thanksgiving. I am sure that there's so much for us to be grateful for. You know, what I do is always to celebrate the highest. And that is sometimes a challenge during these times. Uh, as we celebrate the highest, we also want to make sure that we have our eyes wide open and that we're paying attention to what's going on in our world. And so I am absolutely thrilled that I have a guest who is paying attention. Not only is he paying attention, he talks about what's going on in our world all of the time, uh, often on MSNBC uh, and more. So let me tell you who I have today. He is Dr. Eddie S. Cloud Jr. He's the James S. McDonald Distinguished University Professor and Chair of African-American Studies at Princeton University. He's the former president of the American Academy of Religion, which is the largest professional organization of scholars of religion in the world. Like I told you, he knows what he's talking about. He's the author of several important books, including Democracy in Black, How Race Still Enslaves the American Soul. He is the author of the most recent book, which is so incredibly timely for now, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its urgent lessons for our own. It was just released a couple of months ago in the pandemic. I'm telling you, it's a beautiful read. I want all of you all to read it. And we're gonna talk about his book and what's going on in our world today. So I'm very honored to welcome Dr. Eddie Cloud Jr. Welcome. Well, thank you so much. I'm so delighted to be here with you. Well, I watch you often on MSNBC. Sadly, I keep the TV on all the time because we look. It we have had so many moments when you don't know what's going to happen when you wake up in the morning, right? I mean, we've had a good four years of literally not knowing what's going to happen in the morning, mm -hmm. and. I have felt that I had to pay attention and sometimes it's hard to go to sleep. And even after the election, we I don't even know whether we are still at peace more, but you know, it's a difficult time. So I know you're paying attention to all these current events and evaluating them. How do we get to the point where the president elect has to use the media in order to be able to say what his plans are because the current resident is not trying to give up what he probably calls the throne? Well, that's a great question. In so many ways, the, um, our, you know, our, our democracy is broken. I mean, we have to admit it. And Trump is just the latest instantiation, in some ways the most exaggerated, right, indication of that brokenness. And so, you know, we've gotten to this moment where the idea of a peaceful transition of power uh, is a question. We've gotten to the point to where um, even if there is a transition, uh, the president will not concede. Um, and so this is something the Republic has never really faced before. That's right. And, and so, you know, as, as a country boy from the Gulf Coast, <laughs> you know, I, I've been through a few hurricanes in my lifetime and, you know, the you know the front end of the hurricane is is really dangerous, and then there's the eye of the storm, which is the calm. So you get to walk out and assess, but you can't get too comfortable because the tail's coming. Mm. 
And so we're in the eye of the storm right now. Mm. Don't get too comfortable. The tail's coming. Oh, I mean, I literally got chills when you said that because that's real. And, you know, this is also an election where more people in the United States have voted than ever before. Mm. And a lot of people, myself included, were shocked that so many people would vote on both sides, that people who have been disenfranchised, including being disenfranchised by this administration, some of them voted too. Mm -hmm. We know that some of them voted, that black men voted for someone who has denied their existence. I just don't understand. I don't know that you do, but what if you could put that in context, what does it mean that 71 million people voted for the incumbent who has very overtly espoused racism, you know, all the isms. Mm. How is, what does that mean about 71 million American people? And I, I really sincerely mean this, I, I don't understand. Well, you know, it's up to 73 million now. In, oh. <laughs> yeah, so. But at least um, Biden got 80. What is it? Is it yeah, Biden is at 80 something. So <laughs> oh look, I think I think with those historic numbers, what you're going to do, what you're going to see, uh, of course, is kind of the standard statistical difference. Uh, you know, the number of black folk voting for Republicans, that's going to increase because you've seen this exponential increase in the number of voters. So with that increase, you're going to see increases across across the tabs. Mm -hmm. in some ways. So let's just kind of say this is statistically expected if you see this kind of growth in the electorate. That's the first thing. The second thing I would say is that white folks don't have, uh, they don't own selfishness. Mm. And so part of what we know is that there are folks who, who are Black, they're Latin, Black men, Latino, um, Asian, uh, who are, are more interested in their 401ks their stock market portfolios, um, their tax, you know, their taxes than they are in this broad uh, sense of, of, of justice that, that many of us uh, are committed to. So let's just be very clear that among those 73 million, a lot of them are racist. A whole, the majority of them perhaps are, but a lot of them don't care about race. They're just selfish as hell. Mm. And so I think the epidemic of selfishness threatens this republic at the mm -hmm. core because people have opted out of any public, any kind of robust conception of the public good because they're only out for themselves. And Donald Trump is an avatar for that selfishness. Wow. You know, one of the things that you write about in your book, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its urgent lessons for our own, you talk about uh, Ronald Reagan. Mm. And I, I was in college when Ronald Reagan was in office. I went to Howard University. I'm not going to hold that against you. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm a Morehouse man. <laughs> I know you just, are. Go, <laughs> go brother. That's all right. I couldn't go to Morehouse. I, not, not back then. It, was, it, it didn't allow still, me. Still, still. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, but at Howard, so I'm from Baltimore. I, I grew up in a black neighborhood and I went to Howard University and like what I knew of blackness 
expanded exponentially because it was like the United Nations of Blackness at Howard. It was just incredible. And I befriended a group of Nigerian brothers who, whose families had had enough wealth that they'd gotten their wealth to England before the government shut down. They'd gotten their kids out so they could be educated in either Europe or America. These, these guys came here. And I remember being in class with uh, one person who I was very close to, and we would debate all the time about everything. But one, the reason I'm bringing this up is he said to me, it, 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 Reagan, and, and I was like, I, I can't, I'm not for Reagan. I'm not down with Reagan. I'm sorry, I just am not. And the Nigerians were like, what is wrong with you? He's, he's gonna help us build wealth. Reaganomics is great. And I mean, this was a ferocious discussion, Eddie. And I tried to explain what I knew about black history, about blacks in American history and how, based upon everything that I had learned from my parents and from my studies, that this was not gonna be good for black people. And he's like, you, you black Americans are always complaining and you just need to make money. And I, I'm saying, I remembered this when I was reading your book and I'd like for you to talk about, because you said Trump is one thing, but this didn't start four years ago. What was Ronald Reagan's impact on especially black people, but you know, you talk about the prison industrial complex and, and, and Ronald Reagan, can you explain him and, and also in the context of, of this debate that I had with this Nigerian brother who was smart, but I will say uninformed. Right. So, you know, typically what we try to do or what some people try to do is tell the story of Donald Trump as if, you know, he can only be understood in the lineage of racist demagogues. So they tell the story through Pat Buchanan and then George Wallace down to Strom Thurmond. Right. So, you know, they, they trace his lineage back to the Dixiecrats and they tend to uh, ignore the fact that Pat Buchanan came, you know, cut his political teeth within the context of Reagan uh, and, and those folks. Right. So I say, no, 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 that's too easy because it allows us to kind of dismiss him as this racist demagogue and and to uh, absolve ourselves of, of, in some ways, the responsibility for who 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 Trump is and, and Trumpism more generally. The best way to account for him is, to my mind is through Reagan. So, you know, Reagan's campaign in Neshoba County, right? That that speech in Neshoba County where he offered his, his support to states' rights, that's where Sharna Goodman and Cheney were murdered. We know exactly what that was. That was a dog whistle. Right. And, and, and we know who told him to do it. And those were the folks who supported George Wallace. Right. And see, for black power activists, Ronald Reagan was as notorious as George Wallace. He was the governor of California. He was the one who unleashed this, the power of the state on the Black Panther Party. He was the reason why Angela Davis had to leave the UC school system and do it. So Ronald Reagan, in the minds of black activists, particularly black power activists, was as notorious a racist as George Wallace. Right. And so when people when he came on the scene talking about make America great again, when he came on the scene and let's be clear, many white folk thought he was crazy. <laughs> so we were in college. But, you know, you remember that uh, that campaign. Right. Uh, 
prior to us being in college. You know, he, he ran in 79. But that campaign, they thought he was going to cause World War III. Yes. George George H.W. Bush said that his economic philosophy was, he called it voodoo economics. He sure right? did. That's right. You remember? So yeah. there's a sense in which Reagan represented this Goldwater moment, which had been defeated. And now it was now it was triumphant, triumphant. And so part of what we have to do is to understand its fundamentals. Mm. Reagan was charged to dismantle not only the great society, but the framework of the New Deal. That's what he was charged to do. Right. And so to undermine what the last major piece of legislation passed in the great society is the Fair Housing Act of 1968. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 12 years later, Reagan's elected to undo it all. And so, look, James Brown supported uh, Reagan. Ralph, <laughs> Ralph Abernathy. Ralph oh Abernathy. Ralph Abernathy supported Reagan. And we have been living within the frame of Reaganomics ever since. And that's an important point, Eddie, because, okay, uh, James Brown was beloved by all, but not a politician, you know, a creative <laughs> artist. Ralph Abernathy, I mean, when, when you go to him, now we're talking about a serious brother who was politically minded. And this happened also with Trump. I mean, you know, I think a mistake that Hillary Clinton made was to to speak of of his supporters as what did she call it? A, a basket of deplorables or something. Mm -hmm. Yes. That that was short sighted because there are all kinds of people who uh, supported him and who still support him, especially, as you said early on. I mean, from day one, so many businesses in particular suddenly their bank accounts swell because of the changes in the tax structure. And sadly, and going back to your initial point about selfishness, selfishness will be the demise of everyone. We, you know, and during the season of Thanksgiving, we want people to be generous, to think of their fellow man, woman, and child, not to be selfish. Oh man, it's, it's, it's something. Let me stop and remind folks. You are listening to Dream Leapers with Harriet Cole here in WBAI in New York City, 99.5 FM and everywhere online at WBAI.org. And I have the honor right now of talking to Dr. Eddie Glau Jr. And his book, his new book is called Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. So Eddie, now's a perfect time to bring in James Baldwin. One of the things that is a recurrent thread through your book is what Baldwin called the lie. And we know that during at least these four years of Trump being in office, he just kept saying, this is fake, fake news, fake this, fake that, like anything that he didn't want to be real, he called fake. And yet there's this underlying understanding that James Baldwin contemplated for so many years that you uh, mm. expose and, and contemplate in this book about the lie. What is the lie that he and you are talking about? You know, the lie is the story we tell ourselves about our inherent goodness as a nation, mm. that America is somehow this shining city on the hill, as Reagan put it, you know, adding the adjective shining. Uh, to John Winthrop's phrase, city on the hill, that he got from Augustine. So um, this idea that America is the redeemer nation, that we are, um, you know, uh, virtuous, 
in our treatment of all others. So in some ways, the lie is this story we tell ourselves to protect our innocence, to evade the harms that we've done, right? And so what Baldwin wants to do is he wants to attack at, at its root this kind of exceptionalist narrative that protects American innocence, that denies white people in particular from, that denies them the ability to see themselves for who they really are, to confront the ugliness that's at the root or the panic that's at the root, as he would put mm. it. So, so, so the lie is the general architecture that protects this belief that white people matter more than others and how that belief shapes our dispositions and informs our social, political, and economic arrangements. The lies that we, you know, we tell that these, these black folk really should be subordinate because they don't have the intellectual capacity to do X, Y, and Z, that they're lazy, that they don't have the will or the commitment to, to pursue you know, uh, uh, the good life as Americans imagine it. So it's that general architecture that allows the country to claim ignorance in the face of what it is doing day in and day out. It's so powerful and insidious. I mean, what you just described, what we see now. So with this latest wave of Black Lives Matter, I think you know all of the factors that came into play, We everybody's at home quarantined because of COVID, mm. social media and the ability to for us to have that murder on repeat and everybody got to see it all over the whole world over and over for the first time in my understanding you know for a the globe protested you know stood up and said this is unacceptable corporations mm -hmm. decided to put their money into more dni work than mm -hmm. ever before now what comes next you know it always goes like this then trump says I'm cutting out all DNI that the government's paying for. And the second one, the second executive order said any company that we do business with at all that has DNI, we're going to stop doing business with you. I mean, to shut that whole thing down. And so I it, during this time, because I've done some work, Eddie, a lot of work recently in um, helping people to look at race from a more sensitive perspective and to own and understand who they are in this, which includes a lot of white folk. And the biggest thing that I see is people wanting to be on the right side of history, wanting to do the right thing, really very well-meaning white folk who are like, but I didn't do that. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not part of that. I. I I love my fellow man. I love black people. What are you talking about? How could I be uh, racist? You know, and then this new term of anti-racist. Mm -hmm. and, and, and there are so many people who are lost, who do not understand how they possibly have a role in the lie. What do you say to those folks who are well-meaning, but could, are perhaps unknowing participants? Right, that, um, you know, we have to tell the truth, as Jimmy would put it, you know, we, we have to tell the truth as, as, you know, as much truth as we can bear and then a little more. Mm -hmm. And so what does it mean to tell the truth, right? That this kind of willful ignorance 
as we might call it, that I didn't do it. I don't know what's going on. This is not my responsibility, right? Um, allows for inequalities that were that are the result of choices made. Like, you know, the wealth gap didn't just happen right. because black folk can't save. The wealth <laughs> gap happened because at the moment in which the vaunted American middle class came into existence with the New Deal, right, black folk were cut out. We couldn't get FHA loans. We couldn't get access to some of the benefits of the GI Bill. The very things that made the American middle class possible because of racism, we were cut out. You act like there wasn't a dual housing market, so we couldn't build wealth. You act like there wasn't a dual labor market where we weren't tracked to particular point segments of the economy so that we couldn't pass it on to our children. You act, We act like the country wasn't, um, shall we say, organized along the lines of, of racial segregation de facto and de jure, right? So you may not have done anything directly, but you, your silence is complicity. So how do we tell that story, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things that I do, I point right in New York City, you know, you got all of these well-meaning liberals, white yes. liberals. And at the moment in which the chancellor of education wanted to, what, desegregate New York schools, what did we see? What happened? We saw all of these so-called supporters of Hillary Clinton, all of these Democrats, right, in those town hall meetings, clamoring for their, you know, for their special, unique good. That's right. You're going to jeopardize my child. You're going to. So these people, right, who view racial justice as a philanthropic enterprise, as a charitable gesture, right, we need to understand, we need to disabuse them of that framework. So the short answer to your question is we got to tell the truth. We have to re-narrate and to say, this is not about what you have done individually. It's about how you benefit from a society organized along the lines that certain bodies ought to be valued and other bodies ought to be devalued. Now, what is your conception of justice in light of that? And, and then that's a huge question, which I think for many people, there is silence that comes after it, primarily because it hasn't been something they've thought about. You know, that, that's what I hear a lot, that I just don't want to say anything because I don't want to say the wrong thing. But conversation and education are essential in order to, mm -hmm. you know, like it's, it's a new muscle for some people, but an important muscle to exercise. Um, but then next is what can we do? What can they do? And one of the things you talk about in your book, Begin Again, is that um, James Baldwin figured out Black people don't have to save white people. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that that's not our responsibility, which is something that many people have thought. And even right now, Eddie, this question comes up all the time. You know, if you're working in an environment where you're the only Black one or very few are there, you are suddenly the expert, even more, the expert on everything Black. Mm -hmm. You know, you may be the expert on whatever your job is, but especially now, because people want to know, well, what did I do wrong? What should I be doing? What can I? And suddenly, once again, not only are we the only representative of the race, we now have to be the history teacher. And so what, what would you say? What would James Baldwin say that white folks who want to be on the right side of history, who want to do the right thing, who don't want to be, uh, carrying this 
the 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 negative carrying the lie into the yeah. future. What 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 can they do? Well, you know, I don't want to. I I'm you know, Baldwin has over seven thousand pages of work, so I don't yeah. want. I never want to try to say what he might have said, you know. But I do know how he answered the question. Okay. At a certain level, he answered the question, you know, because this is a version of what else does the Negro want. Right. And Baldwin is like, that's a disingenuous question. You know what we want. We want exactly what you want. What are you talking about? <laughs> Hello. Right? That's <laughs> what do you mean? Right? We're no different than you as a human being. We have our desires, our wants. What do you mean? What do, what do, what more does the Negro want? Mm -hmm. And so the first thing we have to do when what else, what can I do is to first say, okay, the first thing we want to do is disabuse this philanthropic model. Mm. Racial justice is not something for you to give me. That's the first thing we want is racial equality is not something for you to give me, right? So we want to disrupt that view because if you begin with that philanthropic or charitable model, then you think it is something you possess that you can give to others. And that's just wrong. Then you caught. And usually <laughs> allyship, allyship collapses at the moment yes. in which that philanthropic approach asserts itself. Yes. That's the first thing. The second thing is, well, what do you take? To, going back to the question I asked. And I always do this. What do you take to be a just world? Mm. I take it to be just that everybody, if you're working 40, 60 hours a week, you should make a living wage. You should be able to, to be able to put a roof over your head and put food on the table, to be able to send your children to college if, you, if you're working. You know, so I believe in a living wage. That's a just thing. I believe that you shouldn't go broke because you're sick. Right? I believe that if, if we're all equally treated under the law, that that should look like what that statement means. Mm -hmm. So what is your conception of justice? Right. So once you begin to give voice to that, you know, separate it from this charitable move, now, we, now we're somewhere where we can begin to do some substantive work together. Well, if you believe in a living wage, let's join Fight for 15 together. If you believe in equal equality under the law, Join me in the defund the police movement. Oh, you don't like the phrase? Well, Ooh. let me tell you what it means, right? Let's start talking about what genuine, serious criminal justice reform looks like. So in other words, I'm not charged with giving you the answer. Mm. Don't seek out, as Toni Morrison once said to, to, to us in, graduate, in a graduate class, you know, get off the teat. <laughs> don't ask to get on mine. Right, that's not what we're doing. No, 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 no. She that so world is dying. Mm -hmm. That world is dying, and we can't. We have to refuse to participate in it. If that makes sense, it sure does make sense. Ooh, see, that's why you are who you are, my brother. <laughs> Let me remind people who I'm talking to. This is Dr. Eddie S. Cloud Jr. He has written this incredible book, Begin Again: James Baldwin's America and Its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. You're listening to Dream Leapers with Harriet Cole here in WBAI in New York City, 99.5 FM and everywhere online at WBAI.org. And at this point, I want to remind folks in the season of Thanksgiving and the season of generosity of spirit, we need you. You know, we don't have commercials on WBAI. There's nobody telling us what to do because this 60-year-old progressive radio station is here for us. And that is so important to understand. For 60 years, people have had the freedom to express their views, to bring on any kind of guest they want. 
you know, there are a few rules. We're not supposed to curse. We're not, you know, a couple things that we can't do, but we don't have to assign ourselves to any particular belief. We have the freedom to be together and to bring on great guests like Dr. Gloud. And we need your support. During this season of Thanksgiving, please be generous. Please contribute to WBAI to make sure that we are here, not just for 2021, but for our children and for their children. And how you can do that is to call 516-620-3602. That is our pledge line. You can become a BAI buddy, which means you offer a monthly contribution as little as $10 a month. You can make a one-time contribution for your end of year contributions, however you make contributions, please support us, 516-620-3602. And I'm coming back to you, Eddie. So here's, there's so many things in this book that I'm, and, and let me just say this, as a writer, to a writer, brother, you can write. This book is beautifully written. I mean, it truly, truly is. You you don't have your job for no reason. Let me remind folks with what which <laughs> this is the short of what the job is, and, and I want to talk about that a little bit. You are the James S. McDonald Distinguished University Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University. And there are other things that you do at Princeton too. What's the whole what, what is all of what you do there? Well, I'm you know, I I'm chair of the department and uh, I'm in the religion department. And there are a whole bunch, you know, and I was, you know, a whole bunch of other stuff. No word. I'm blushing, you know, the stop. <laughs> well, but I mean, come on. The brother is sitting at the top. This is really important. And why, look, even as we're talking, it is clear that you have not just read, but you have ingested so much information about our culture and you have clear perspective. This is important. You know, when one of the things that has happened too often, I think, in these political debates that have been going on, I think more people are involved in political debates now than ever in my life, which is mm -hmm. good. However, many people don't know what they're talking about. They haven't read anything. <laughs> they're only, I mean, seriously, they haven't read anything. No, you're right. They have no history. They are looking at their medium of choice. And that comes from a particular perspective. You know, when we think about social media and, you know, this amazing internet, what we also know, and we and we saw from the social contract, if you saw that film, I mean, the algorithms are crazy. So if you like one thing, it's going to take you down a particular rabbit hole and reinforce whatever you believe. Mm -hmm. So how do people who aren't scholars like you, who, are, who aren't committed to reading and synthesizing and learning and processing and thinking, how are they supposed to even know what is true or not? So this 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 notion of fake news that you know the master media manipulator used ends up being true because you have no idea what is real, what is not real. It, it's very very difficult. So with your students, what what are you teaching them about? how to understand and process information in this moment. Well, you know, well, first of all, thank you so much. Um, um, I wanted to announce in with this book that I was a writer. You did it. <laughs> you know, that I didn't want to go, you know, cause there's a certain kind of academic prose that is yes. unique, to, unique to what, you know, what we do in our field and it, it it is, it is jargon full. It, it is, it is. Um, and boring. Yeah, you know, so Sorry, I, this is not look, this is yeah. not 
<laughs> so I wanted I wanted to 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 announce that I'm more than just simply an academic with this book, right? And Jimmy forced me to do that in so many ways. But I think your you know your question is so important because a, any democracy that has a public that isn't informed is in danger. Yep. Right. So you know, conservatives going all the way back to Edmund Burke worried that you know democracies would turn into to to kind of uh, a, a mob, a kind of mass right of ignorance that would that would dictate the movement of government and the like. So there was this concern of the ignorance of the masses, right, actually leading the state, right. Mm -hmm. So if you have a large numbers of folks retreating into their individual silos, acquiring information within those silos that affirm their prejudices, it's very difficult to imagine those folk engaging in informed deliberation with each other. Instead, what you will have are folks saying, because you don't believe in what I believe in, you must be a bad person, right? Holding each other in contempt right. in some ways. So what I've tried to do with my students is to say, how do you bring a kind of complexity and nuance to, to, to the conversation, but you do it in such a way that your mama can understand? There you go. Because I want Juanita to be able to tell, call me to say, you know, boy, you put it down today, right? You, you <laughs> said right. it right. And, you know, and I want to be able to bring, right, the full force of my bibliography to bear on a conversation without having to tell people, all the all the stuff that I'm referring to when I say it in very clear, plain English. Mm -hmm. So what I'm trying to teach my students is how to be nuanced, how to be sophisticated, how to hold off sentimentality, mm. right? But do it in such a way that's democratic. Right? And what do I mean by that? Do it in such a way that invites people in yeah. as opposed to cutting people off. And, that's, and that that's, it's not being so intellectual and, and potentially superior because a lot of scholars come off that way. Well, I know everything and you don't know anything. And right, that, no. that closes doors, right? Right. And, and I would assume because you are at Princeton that most of your students are not people of color. Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. And, and in fact, I've talked to other scholars who have bemoaned the fact that, you know, at, at most of our cultural institutions, the people who are majoring in African-American studies, for the most part, are not people of color. Uh, what is the learning curve for them in terms of embracing this information? It kind of goes back to that first question, that, that other question I had about opening white people's eyes. So clearly these students have chosen this, mm -hmm. but I, I'll go back to when I was at Howard. Like, I didn't read Toni Morrison before I was at Howard. I didn't read any of the, my daughter who's 17 has read Toni Morrison, has, I don't know whether she's read James Baldwin yet, but she has read a number of black authors from the ninth grade. I was in college and because I chose not, mm -hmm. I was an English major, but I chose African American literature that at Howard, that's the only reason I got it. So things have changed. But, but but my assumption is many of your students may have come without much background, with perhaps the longing, but without knowledge of many of these authors. What what is that eye-opening experience for them in school? 
Well, you know, typically it's some text, some book, uh, some encounter in a class that 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 shatters all of their assumptions. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it's what education is supposed to be about. You know, at the heart of education is, you know, to use the German is Bildung, is character formation. Mm-hmm. Right. And in order for that to happen, Du Bois talks about this in Souls of Black Folk. This is why he's resisting this kind of vocational orientation of Washington and, and these folk. Right. That education at its best is to shape who we take ourselves to be. And that requires unsettling our assumptions. Right. A kind of confrontation with the world that we know not of, that shakes us from our prejudices in some ways, that opens our eyes and makes us, you know, how shall we say, um, it allows us to be open to being given the keys to the world's library. Because mm. sometimes you can choose to be parochial. You're born yeah. provincial, but you can choose to be narrow. And so usually and I remember, of course they, they do. Look at the, the, the map of, <laughs> I mean, all of these communities that, are so narrow-minded. Exactly. And by the way, Eddie, if you think about it, almost all communities are. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I think of where I grew up. I mean, people are homogenous for the most part. Whoever they are, most places in the United States, the neighborhoods where people live are homogenous. Occasionally they are not. And so the people who break out of whatever that homogenous thinking are, are often the minority. Yeah, you know, I I make a distinction between being provincial and being parochial. Mm -hmm. So you can go to, you know, the largest city in the United States, the most cosmopolitan space on the planet, New York City, and you go to certain boroughs and some folk ain't been out of them. Ever. They're provincial. Hey, That's not because they didn't shoot yet. Even in Manhattan, where I've lived for 30 years, I live in Harlem. I have met people who haven't left Harlem I mean, who've never, who who haven't left uh, Riverdale, who right. haven't left the village. My my husband, God bless him, who's from Jamaica. Before we met, he was living downtown, um, in 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 um, the village. He told me I, he'd hardly ever been uptown. I'm like, well, brother, we're moving uptown. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, but yeah. it, it's real. So that provincial is, has everything to do with your circumstances, where you're born, the opportunity, your experience, and the like. But parochial is is a choice. Yes, you choose. I choose to send my child only to Catholic schools. That's a that's a choice. I choose not to think. I choose not just to read. I only read Irish literature. I don't read any other kind of literature. That's a choice, right? So part of what what I'm trying to suggest to my students in this moment is. What does, what does it mean to, to, to be educated in a world as diverse as our own? Mm. It requires a kind of openness, not only to, to difference, but a willingness to see the complexity and nuance right, of, of the world that we inhabit. Baldwin put it all the time. He used to say this all the time, you know, simplicity, the illusion of simplicity, right, offers the illusion of comfort. He says, he says at the end of, at the end of uh, To Crush a Serpent, the last essay he wrote in uh, the play, published in Playboy, he says, complexity is our only safety. Mm. I love that line. 
That's I love beautiful. that. And let's talk about James Baldwin very directly because sure. it is possible that there are people who are listening who haven't read him uh, and, and don't know his story. Certainly they don't know it the way that you do, but you even write in the book that you had a level of comfort with Ralph Ellison, who wrote the classic Invisible Man, because of the beautiful prose that he had, and and also just his distant way of <laughs> of uh, contemplating race and culture. And James Baldwin was in your face. He was in your face. He, you know, he was not allowing folk to skirt around anything, to dance around beautiful prose. It was just like you need to pay attention. <laughs> and and he was one of many great beings in black skin who had to move out. He moved to Paris because he was more welcome there and mm -hmm. was able to have a different kind of perspective. Who was James Baldwin? Oh my God, it's such a hard question, right? It so is. Bald, you know, Baldwin is this child of, of Southern immigrants. So we need to we need to understand him as that generation, the first generation born in the north. His 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 stepfather's from Louisiana. His mother Burtis, stepfather David, mother Burtis from Eastern Shore, Maryland. They are part of this wave of folk moving into the cities, and they make their way into into Harlem. And and Jimmy's born born in August of 1924. So he's born right five years before the Great Depression. Right. So he comes of age, not in Harlem Renaissance Harlem, mm. but in post-depression Harlem. Yes. And Jimmy's not from Sugar Hill. So he's not, he's not, he's not, he, he didn't grow up where Langston Hughes and Du Bois and all those folk moved about. He grew up in the hood. So that class difference matters, right? He's also, you know, he grows up in, in storefront. Black Christendom, right? So, you know, his father was an stepfather was an itinerant Baptist preacher. Baldwin himself became a childhood preacher, child preacher at, at the age of 14, moving into Fireside Pentecostal Church, a storefront. Mm -hmm. um, but then his then something happened to him, right? Not only his own desires, right? Not only his own struggles with his sexuality, but Baldwin began to read. Mm. You know, what you gonna do when you encounter Dortieski? <laughs> How, how is that going to impact the way in which you understand, right, um, uh, the dogma of of, of these uh, very conservative spaces in which he moved about? And he had to grapple with the own, you know, the abusive nature of his stepfather and and the demands on him. He, you know, he's always misfitted. And as he said uh, uh, in the Price of the Ticket, you know, he had to in an interview, he had to leave because either he was going to get killed or he was going to kill somebody. So in 1948, he bounced, to put it colloquially. He <laughs> yeah. left and went to Paris. And you know, if, you know, if you leave it to Baldwin, he left because he kind of you know spun a globe and just you know randomly chose Paris. We know why he went to Paris, right? Uh, there's a large expat black community there. Richard Wright was there. Yeah. And we got to give we got to give black the brother boy. from Mississippi all, all right. of his credit. You know, another I don't genius. I don't know how he did what he did. Um, um, and it's there that Baldwin wills himself into becoming one of the world's most amazing writers and the most insightful critic of American democracy and race. Um, 
And he was so brave. I mean, this, this is a man who put it out there, plain. I mean, beautifully written, but plain. Yeah, you know, you think about it, Harriet. First novel is Go Tell It on the Mountain. And usually when you hit with that kind of book, and I, he, you know, there's this video circulating with him um, and Maya Angelou talking uh, on YouTube. And he's talking about what happens when you hit that with that book. The right. editors want you to write that book over and over and over again. Yeah. So he hits with Go Tell It on the Mountain. And his next book novel is Giovanni's Room. Yes, that's right. I mean, in the 1950s. And Baldwin was like, you can't hold that over my head. I told you. So, and you know, when I interviewed Angela Davis for Begin Again, and it's so amazing to watch her talk about Baldwin because she she turns into this like, I mean, it was the eyes dance. She, I mean, it's just love for him. And, and um, she said in so many ways, he was out there all by himself. Yes. The courage, the courage. Oh. So, you know, I mean, he. I could go on and on and on about he it. He was yeah. a warrior in a different way, a warrior with words, and 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 because of that, his work lives on. I mean, mm -hmm. that that's the beauty of literature that the work lives on, and and this is so important. Let me remind folks: we are having the wonderful privilege of talking to Dr. Eddie Cloud Jr. He is a contributor on MSNBC. You probably have seen him there. He's he is always holding it down telling the truth. And you know, sometimes even in those spaces, you can question whether you could just put it out there. But with your eloquence and your demeanor, you are able to, I have heard you say some things like, did he just say that on MSNBC? <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> he is also running the African-American Studies Department at Princeton, as well as many other things there. He has written this book, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. I'm gonna to say to you one more time because you know I must. In this season of giving, give to us. Look, don't I bring on some great guests, y'all? You know I do. I'm so proud to have Dr. Cloud here with us. And you know, we we spend a lot of time thinking about who we can bring on. And, and under Dream Leapers, I am always looking to bring people who will inspire us as they tell the truth. I don't want anything to be a downer, even if we're dealing with some tough stuff. And I think that we are accomplishing that today. We do this every week. Your contribution to WBAI will make such a big difference. Please be generous. Call us at 516-620-3602. Make your end of year pledge or your Thanksgiving pledge in gratitude. We are grateful for you and we need your support. So it's 516-620-3602. And we appreciate you. Eddie, this... I'm thinking about the way forward. You know, uh, Biden truly owes a debt of gratitude to black people. Mm -hmm. He has said as much. Uh, he has talked about being a unifier and he is sh showing himself with the deportment of the world leader that we expect the American president to be. And there are some concerns, that, uh, lots. Uh, including this sense of unifier. Our beloved Barack Obama wanted to be a unifier and he was in certain ways, but I think because of some of that grace, he didn't push as hard as some people thought he should have pushed when he had the house and the Senate because he was being a unifier. I'm not trying to criticize the brother, but I think that's part of what is reality. How can we be a unifier 
effectively when we are not unified at all? And how do we hold Biden accountable for doing the right thing by black people and other people of color and other disenfranchised people when we know how difficult it is to move through government at a time when, like, as we say, Trumpism isn't going away. I mean, it's it's a hard question mm -hmm. to, to answer, but let me be very, very clear. Uh, what is the cost of unification? Right. Every time this country has clamored for unity, it has done so on the backs of us. So who are we unifying with and what do we have to give up? I'm not willing to allow for a compromise that will have that will be born on the backs of my future grandchildren. I don't want them to have to go through that. I had to watch my baby go through that, just as my dad had to watch me go through it, just as his father had to watch him. So, so part of what I want to suggest is, what are you compromising about? Mm -hmm. Right. That's the first thing. And so the second thing I would suggest is that you know. Our, the goal was not the election of Biden and Harris. The goal is a more just America. And we knew we had to see the back of Trump's head in order for that to happen. So Biden and Harris is a means to, to an end. They're not the end. Right. And so we have to understand what that will mean in its details. And so we know that they wouldn't be in the White House if it wasn't for what happened in the Metro Atlanta, if it wasn't what happened in Philly, what happened in, 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 in Milwaukee, what happened in Detroit. Right. Native peoples in Nevada and culinary workers in Nevada and, and Latino Latinx folk in Arizona. He wouldn't be there. So part of what we have to do is not allow uh, people to tinker around the edges, not allow Biden to appoint people who look like us and say that's all he needs to do. Right. As if representation represents policy. No, not necessarily. And by the way, we need to see a few more of us. I, I, uh. I, I, I was not necessarily rejoicing when he rolled out the cabinet. <laughs> just saying, just saying. <laughs> so, so part part of what I'm part and of I what I'm trying to see. Yeah. I want to give the man a chance, but right. But what I'm saying is that you know we fell for that okie doke in 2008. We fell for the okie doke of representation in 2008, and you know lifting all boats. We heard that in 2008. We did. We heard we had to protect his his right flank, his because the racists were coming at him, and we couldn't advocate for the hell that we were catching as a community. No, 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 no. Not this time. Not this time. And so, part of what we need are policy positions that will address substantively uh, the criminal justice system. Policy positions that will address substantively how COVID-19 has devastated our communities, not only in terms of health, but in terms of the economy of our communities. Substantive policies with regards to urban education. We need to be clear, right? And not lift all your boats, not tinkering around the edges. And I want to say this on WBAI now, all right. that when they deploy Vice President Harris, to try to contain our outrage, if they fail, if they deploy Vice President Harris to contain our outrage, sisters will have to step up. 
They will have to step up. Now that is a powerful statement. I have not heard that before. It makes sense. Because as you know, Eddie, what she, first of all, there's so many people who are happy because she's in office, of right? Of course, and we should be. And we should be. And she helped to, to create that coalition of the divine nine. She's an AKA, I'm a Delta. We got a whole bunch of folk who really hardly ever come together in that coalesced, but to help bring this woman into power. Uh, many people from different communities, many women from different communities have stood up and said, we believe in you, you better make it happen. And so that's gonna be an interesting challenge. And I say, it reminds me of when Obama was in office and when Tavis Smiley and Cornell West were holding his feet to the fire and you would have thought that they were um, Judas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Seriously, like how dare you? How, how could you? I mean, we all loved Obama. I still love Obama. However, there were some things that needed to be addressed and people weren't having it. So, mm -hmm. so when you say black women should hold Kamala Harris's feet to the fire, what does that look like? What, what, what would you suggest that they do? No, so what, what I'm what I'm saying is this: is that we have a policy agenda that is evidenced in the Democratic platform. It is the most radical platform that the Democratic Party has put forward uh, in generations. Uh, we want to see uh, uh, substantive uh, efforts to implement those policy initiatives, um, and particularly addressing the question of criminal justice reform yes. uh, in a very substantive way. We want to shift the frame. And so part of what I'm saying here is this, is that I'm I'm not prejudging the Biden-Harris uh, administration. And I'm excited about the symbolic significance of her presence uh, as vice president, mm -hmm. her presence in the White House, period. But I want to say this, though, that when we begin to bring pressure to bear on the administration to deliver the typical way, the typical response, and this is historic, I can point to the record, is to deploy black elites mm -hmm. to tell us to be quiet, to tell us to calm down, to say that we can't do this because we gotta work with such and such and such and such. We can't address, what did Obama tell us? I'm not the president of black America, I'm the president of all Americans. Yes, and I said, I didn't ask you that. We voted for you at 90 plus percent. Respond to us as a constituency that voted for you at 90 plus percent. That's right. Now, if this is the case, if they want to you know, come in, ride our coattail, get into the White House and then not deliver, then when we start holding their feet to the fire, don't, and if they deploy Vice President Harris to keep us quiet, I can't speak to her in the way that 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 I spoke to Obama. Sisters are going to have to do that. I hear you. I hear you. And see, the <laughs> thing is, that I will say this. I will say this really quickly. And I know I'm sounding a little edgy here. That's all right. Because it's, it's real because the stakes are real because the goal wasn't to elect them. The goal is a more just America. There are means to that ends. Too many of us get excited about getting invitations to the White House. <laughs> Two of us, too many of us. I went to Morehouse. You went to Howard. You know how we are. Yes. Put on, and, put know, on our finest and stroll on in. 
Come on. <laughs> and so many of us are excited because now we can walk the corridors of power. Yes. The question is what you're going to do with it? How you're going to deliver? That's the question. Those are important questions. And we just have a couple minutes left, literally. Sure. Uh, I would like to know what you think Obama should be doing now, because he has been a voice in a way that no other former president has. What can he do to support the positive motion that we need for a more just America? I'm not sure, mm. you know, to be honest with you. Um, he is, he can be this extraordinary force, but but I'm, his politics are what they are. Mm -hmm. And so we need to understand that. If, if you could imagine what those NBA players could have done if they just stayed out a couple of more games. Mm -hmm. But no, he told them, you've already made your point. Go on back and play now. So you can imagine um, um, what we can do around criminal justice reform because you know he had eight years, he had eight years. So part of what I'm saying is that symbolically President Obama is, is important, but we have to understand the limitations of his politics. And I'm gonna say this very, very, very clearly. I love, I love the importance of his presidency, but we have been there and done that. So it's time to move forward. <laughs> so saith Dr. Eddie Gloud, author of Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. Brother, you, you kept it real. Thank you so very, very much. Blessings to you and your family during this time. And I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you Indeed. so much. Have a wonderful holiday and stay safe. Uh, you too. Thank you, everyone, for joining me here on Dream Leapers with Harriet Cole. WBAI 99.5 FM. I wish you a safe and happy holiday season. Let us hold our elected officials' feet to the fire, do what we need so that we can create a more just world. And until we meet again, have a great day and make it count.